Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today, as we're deep into the holiday season, we're going to be discussing Iris and swimming, not just in her fiction, although I'm sure there'll be plenty of that, but in her life, her journals and the links to her philosophy. Joining me today are three Murdoch experts and also they're all self-confessed wild swimmers, so who better to guide us through Iris's watery world? First, we've got Natasha Alden, who's Senior Lecturer in English Literature at um, Aberystwyth University. Hi, Natasha. Hello. Uh, her interests um, lie in 20th century and contemporary literature, particularly contemporary historical fiction, women's writing, visual culture and gay and lesbian fiction. And in 2014, she published Reading Behind the Lines, Post-Memory in Contemporary British Fiction with uh, Manchester University Press. And her current work seeks to look beyond the use of source material to analyse a broader spectrum of contemporary post-memory fiction, revisiting the First and Second World Wars, and she asks why so many contemporary authors, many of them born long after 1918 and even 1945, return to those years. As a swimmer, um, one of her very first memories is that she nearly drowned in a brownie swimming regatta in 1986. And I'm sure I'll be revisiting some of these memories a little bit later on. My second guest is Hannah Altoff, um, who's a reader in philosophy at St Mary's University in London. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Miles. And she was um, programme director in philosophy for eight years. And she's written several articles on um, Iris Murdoch, as well as um, the book Iris Murdoch and the Art of Imagining, which came out a few years ago. And together with Merritt Willemson, she translated The Sovereignty of Good into Dutch. And she remembers um, receiving her first swimming certificate at the age of six. <laughs> and finally, we've got um, Lucy Alton, who's um, working at um, the research centre here at Chichester. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Miles. Uh, Lucy's interests include effect theory and eco-criticism, and she's now undertaking research into landscape, place and space in the novels of Iris Murdoch. And she's also guest edited this year's Iris Murdoch Review, which is going to be published next month. One of her sw first swimming memories is falling off a boat into the Thames near Port Meadow in Oxford and having to be fished out by her father. Lucy, let's start with some background material um, to give us a flavour of Iris's own connections um, with swimming in her life. Give us a bit of the biography. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we, we talk about wild swimming now, but um, for Murdoch it was just swimming. And... Um, and I suppose, you know, the combination of pristine swimming pools and increasingly urbanised living spaces mean that now we, um, you know, we think about swimming as, you know, swimming, when we just talk about swimming, we're talking about that, you know, in, in the pool with lots of chlorine and, and uh, an overwhelming smell of the chemical. But so, so but for Murdoch, she um, is well known to have enjoyed swimming in rivers and in the sea, in canals and what have you. And I often wonder whether um, it was the um, cold baths at Badminton School at 7.15 every morning that might have uh, acclimatised her, shall we say, to um, the cold water that she was going to um, enjoy throughout her life um, of fresh, fresh rivers and uh, salty seas. But um, she's said to have learnt to swim in the salt baths at Dublin. Um, and also spent her summer holidays returning to Ireland and swimming with her cousins in the saltwater baths uh, further down the coast in, at Dunleary, Dunleary Harbour. And uh, Peter Conradi notes that um, Iris would plunge into almost any available water. So um, she um, is, has recorded to Philippa Foote in a letter of 1989 that she regarded swimming as a spiritual activity. 
Um, and there's a wonder, rather wonderful story about her uh, when they moved, when she and Peter, uh, she and John Bailey, um, when Iris Murdoch and John Bailey moved to Cedar Lodge in 1956, she would have been about 36 years old. Um, he, uh, Conradi notes that she had a big rambling garden and it had, the garden had many springs sloping steeply down to a muddy, shallow, stream-fed fish pond where in the early days, Iris liked to swim. I don't think John went in. He's recorded as trailing around in his dressing gown. So, But he was very enthusiastic about her swimming. And later on, during the, the period of time when they were living there, they lived there for about 30 years, um, he created Iris's wallow in a derelict greenhouse. So he enabled <laughs> Iris to be able to swim all the year round. Um, and according to Peter Conradi, it was a plastic-lined concrete affair, six feet deep, ten feet long by eight feet wide. Um, the greenhouse was simply roofed with polystyrene, and once filled, the pool was kept topped up with rainwater from the roof. Um, and John Bailey notes that it, the water very soon became brown and clear with the authentic river smell. Um, the pool was wonderfully slimy to the touch and um, Bailey says it, the water was surprisingly pure and he didn't need to put any chemicals in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there, there she was, she was able to swim um, all year round. But of course in the winter um, it got pretty chilly and um, uh, Bailey notes that um, the place, he noticed that the place was wired for some old electric heating pipes being a greenhouse. And um, he thought, well, the power points in reasonably good condition. And he installed a couple of immersion heater elements, which were really meant for sort of a domestic heating system. So he lay those on the bottom and he describes uh, the scene. When they got switched on, it sent up a cloud of bubbles through the brown water. <laughs> um, and as far as... Um, yeah, as far as he was concerned, these elements were designed to be submerged anyway, so he wasn't really worried about it. He did put up a skull and crossbones sign warning that the contraption ought to be switched off before entering the water. But I love the bit where he writes with wonderful and understatement. I did not like the idea of finding Iris floating and insensible, although she herself remained blissfully unaware of any hazard involved, and I was always careful to be present when the pool was being used in its heated state. Angus Wilson adds that, you know, in, in 1972, that, um, well, he claims to have noticed a single bar electric fire hanging above the wallow from a piece of string. And Bailey explained it away by saying, well, the, you know, the Oxfordshire mornings can be really cold, you know. Um, so later on, they left Cedar Lodge in 1985 for a smaller house in Oxford, and they continued to swim right up until, in the Thames mostly, but when they were traveling, they would swim um, in the sea. Um, there's some lovely anecdotes in Arthur Murdoch's uh, journal and obviously in the biographies. But, um, <clears throat> you know, she, uh, so she, they continued to swim, to swim right up until her health deteriorated. And, and I suppose the responsibility came to weigh too heavily on Bailey to continue to take her. Um, and it makes me think about the, makes me reflect on the Richard Eyre film that um, 
but he portrays it as swimming, remaining a feature of her life. Um, and in the film, it's used overtly as a metaphor to convey the aging and declining Murdoch. But what it also does, I think, um, and I had to rewatch the film to remember this, um, it does express her growing affinity with an engagement with nature, um, this, um, this animism, this thinginess of the world that um, became increasingly important to her, and I think one can track it through the later novels. Um, her obsession with collecting pebbles on the beach. Um, yeah, so, um, and I think, yes, you, you know, we think of the nice and the good, and we, um, we think of various scenes, you know, we, we, we sense the sort of natural environment in the, the swimming events um, much more strongly in the later novels like The Sea, The Sea. I'll, I'll get on to talking about those couple of novels later. Um, one of the other things biographically I wanted to sort of look at was there are a couple of entries in her journals, they're 13 years apart, both recorded on the 8th of June. The first one, 8th of June, 1983, so she would have been 64. Um, she writes, a beautiful warm day. We drove out along the Whitney Road and walked to the river across a meadow full of buttercups and white chickweed and yellow toad flax. Had sedge warblers among the reeds and willows. I swam. Two swans came. Now, if you go to her last journal, there's a point at which she's recording, or she's saying, telling, uh, um, there's, there's a point at which she records her, la her last swimming visit. But in between that, um, Conradi has noted in his biography that she has already told them at age 76 in 1996, I don't have a world. So her, the world around her seems to be sort of falling away as, she, as her health deteriorates. And then we get to this very last, um, or one of her very last journal entries, again on the 8th of June, but this time 1996. And it's, it's, um, a case of looking at the sort of deterioration of language here. Uh, we swam in the Thames in our usual secret place for the first time this year. Ducks, geese, swans, a delightful man comes swimming in. We talked, no one else in the whole huge area. Swims off, he swims by. Conversation, beautiful the area, immense field, river, another further on immense field, no one, no sign of the road. On other side, cows wander, poor cows. This is usual, actual, the way we go on, absolute solitude. Through so very many years, very nice chap, very brief conversation. He in river, we after our swim on the land, only his noble head and voice. He turns after meeting us. The lovely Thames River continues. And I suppose what we noted um, most of all is that the language has become much more generic. Lots of generic terms, cows, ducks, geese, field. 
Nothing at all about the sort of rich diversity of the wild flowers or bird life she'd previously noted in the same spot. But the thing that really fascinates me about all of this is that her body, as far as we know, appears to still know how to swim. Um, and I find that uh, fascinating. And of course, then she went on to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 1997. So Hannah, thinking about what um, Lucy's just said, I think there's an interesting point there to be made about uh, Murdoch's own thoughts about swimming, but also connecting swimming with spirituality and, and character development. I know you've been thinking particularly about the sort of character developments within the novel. So say a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think what's an interesting question here in relation to that is, is who gets to swim? And as you write, mm, yeah, of course. Me, um, you also have this idea of um, when do you learn how to swim, right? So I got my swimming diploma at six and I retrieved it over the weekend and I just realized what I learned. And there's three things you have to learn. One is that you have to swim fully dressed. The other is you have to swim over a distance. And the third is you have to, I think it's best translated as water treading. So keep your heads above the water and keep mm -hmm, two yeah. fingers above the water. I would think that must be such a funny view, right? Six, six, 26 year olds with two fingers and their heads trying for a minute above the water. What's interesting is that you're learning how to swim, how to survive, right? When you fall into the water. And that's because in the Netherlands, there's so much water. So swimming there is something that everyone learns. But in other situations, it's something that only people who can afford learn. And so then it becomes a sort of distinction. Now, Conradi says you can read the novels by just looking at the swimming, like make a reading through swimming. And when you do that for the bell, I think some interesting elements appear. So who swims, who likes to swim, who doesn't swim. And one of the main characters, of course, is Dora, who can't swim. And um, what then happens is when she confesses that to the rest of the members of the community, they are all astonished, right? So they're so surprised that she can't swim. But I think for, for me, that is really significant in as much as throughout the novel, until she comes into herself, she is judged by the others. She seems to have no real sense of self but she has good instincts, right? So she saves a butterfly, even though, you know, the manuscript of her, of her Cosabon is left in the, in the train. <laughs> and she notices actually that Catherine, is that there is some difficulty about Catherine uh, entering the convent where all the others are of deep, full of deep admiration. But I think the main scene here is when she, uh, when, when you have the ceremony with the bell. So then the new bell is going to be let into the convent. And of course, it uh, never gets there. It falls into the water. And again, then, Dora is the one with the great instincts because she sees that Catherine is about to drown herself. And so she follows Catherine into the water, even though she can't swim herself. She then almost drowns. I think it's not that serious because I read somewhere that when you drown, you don't shout and she is still shouting in a certain way. And she's then saved by the mother, one of the nuns, by Mother Claire, um, who we are told sort of strips to the waist and keeps a dry face, a, a dry face all the time. And apparently that is, that is very important. I'll read a bit where it's both a very tragic scene because Catherine almost drowns herself, Dora almost drowns, and it's the same time, I think, a comic scene, as we often see in Murdoch, the sort of the tragedy and the comedy comes together. 
And then when she comes out of the water, and Dora is sort of starting to get back together, she, she, this happens. Uh, Murdoch writes, a grotesque figure, figure was pressing forward. Dora stared at it in amazement, a short-haired woman, apparently naked to the waist and dressed in black from the waist down. Then she realized it was the nun in her underclothing. The nun leaned over Catherine, asking how she was, and then turned to smile at Dora. She was totally unembarrassed and accepted with a polite nod the coat which Mrs. Mark was offering her. She seemed a young woman. Her freckled face was still almost dry. This is Mother Claire, said Mark. You two seem destined to meet after all. And that's almost the end of the scene. And then in the sort of near the end of the novel, we learn that Dora learns how to swim almost by herself. She teaches herself to swim in the water of the lake uh, in, in October, when it's apparently still warm, but it must be rather cold. So she, she teaches herself, but I think, what the, for me, this is an interesting way to read the novel through those three scenes. Conradi says, well, reading, um, to be able to swim is almost to possess a moral competence in relation to the bell. I would let the emphasis, put the emphasis slightly different. I think to swim is almost you get a sense of self, not too much and not too little, right? So she, when, and I think this relates back to when I swim myself in cold water and you get out of the, uh, of the water and you have a real sense of your whole body, which is trying to sort of stay warm. So you really feel self and at the same time, it sort of disappears. Like you don't know which day it is in the sense that it could be any day in, in, in any year. And it doesn't all matter that much. You feel much more at ease with everything. At least that is my experience. And I think Murdoch sort of uses that experience to talk about Dora finding herself. I mean, she teaching herself to swim is quite an achievement, especially before there was any YouTube um, to teach you anything you wanted <laughs> to learn. But there is something really interesting here. And then she has a sense of self. It's not too big. It's not too, too small. And she, she feels at home. Um, and I think, and also bodily, again, the, the body plays an important role. So body changes when you go swimming. Like I think the wonderful quotation that Lucy read, a swimmer becomes a head and a voice, right? You become a very different person and who is able on the land doesn't necessarily mean to be able in the water and vice versa. There are people who are not very small, quick on, the, on, on land and suddenly they, they race through the water. And so again, you become much more of um, a much different relation to your body. And you see that with Dora as well. So she is at first extremely uncomfortable about how she looks and that disappears as well. So there is something here about a sense of self, I think, expressed through the experience of swimming, which is very important for Murdoch. No, I absolutely agree. And of course, you've got different um, parts of the lake as well, haven't you? What bits of the clear and bits of the muddier and... Yes. In, in, in that novel. I'm interested as well to think about um, sort of what we might call natural places to swim. And of course, we've got several of those, you know, talking about the lake and the bell or um, um, Mim's Cauldron in the, in the Sea of the Sea. Of course, I'm sure we'll come on to that later. Um, the, the swimming baths at Eniston. Um, perhaps we'll, we'll hear a, bit, a little bit about those later, which are kind of a half halfway house. But there's, only, there's very few places that are actually kind of what we might call an unnatural place for murder to swim would be a swimming pool. We find that in a fairly honourable defeat, don't we? Yeah, so I think that's, I, I don't know of many other swimming pools, but the swimming pool in a fairly honourable defeat plays quite a big role, I think. And again, indeed you're right with 
clear and muddy. So water is clear and the light, or sometimes the water is, is muddy. Uh, if I go just back to the bell, when Toby finds the bell, this is where I'm not so sure Murdoch was an able swimmer because he just goes swimming into the water that's unclear with his eyes open. I, I can't imagine doing that. Anyway, back to the swimming pool. The swimming pool is a luxury. And I think the Hilda and Rupert in a fairly honorable defeat do feel uncomfortable about it. It's unnecessary. They feel a bit smug. They try to pay it off. And it is not a place of, of anything good. Um, there is... At the very start already, the threat of the bumblebee drowning, almost drowned, doesn't drown. There's the hedgehog they fear will drown mm. and actually drowns in the end. And of course, in the end, Rupert drowns in the swimming pool. But I think what's interesting and drowns by misadventure. So it's a mishap. It, it happened accidentally. At the same time, you just wonder about, they keep worrying about all these drowning animals, but they never do anything to stop them from drowning. So it seems to be that this swimming pool is just a, a source that will, a, a, a sort of symbol for anything that will go wrong. And I think what's interesting is that the, the main saintly character of a fairly honorable defeat, Talis doesn't see the swimming pool. But this is also in the scene where, where Hilda says about him, oh, where Talis is, there is muddle. And then she says, oh no, where there's a muddle, there is Talis. And you get this sort of positive sense of a swimming pool. And that's the same scene actually where he asks Rupert, why is stealing bad? And Rupert gives this perfect, clear, fantastic answer that doesn't help him in any way whatsoever. And so again, you see this sort of contrast between the muddy and the clarity. And you see that Murdoch has a sort of, um, she, finds, she finds clarity quite difficult and, and she's a bit suspicious of too much clarity. She thinks it might be better to be in muddy waters, but at least you know uh, that they're muddy and you need to wade through them. And clarity can just mislead you in thinking everything is clear. Yeah, so it's interesting to think actually, you've, you've reminded me how often scenes of drowning are connected to um, particular characters and, and, and their own moral development as well, or, or you know, the, or the fear of drowning is as well of course for, for Murdoch as we know she did have a, a, a near death drowning experience um off the coast of Dorset um when she was with her with, when she was with her husband and, and, and Reynolds Stone Do you know in which year that was Miles oh I think it's early-ish 80s wasn't it I think it's was, um 83 84 something like that have any of you swum there no no I, no, I haven't I've been there but I haven't there was a bit of a drama wasn't there yesterday with Lulworth Cove and it's yes there it, was yeah it has a kind of, um, it's a very pebbly beach and it curves, there's this kind of curving mm. up. You have to kind of reach up to get out of the water. Mm. And then you've got this very powerful undertow and you almost have to kind of um, you know, body forth to get out of the water. It's an extraordinary experience and I can see how if it's remotely, you know, the tide is on the turn, I mean, you know, or has turned, then you are a bit in trouble, I think, if you're not you're not expecting it yes yeah, so we get that we get that um sense um of um humans entering the water but na nature being able to survive both in see the sea and of course in the unicorn as well um neither of which are communal scenes but we do have a very strong communal scene of of course well regular communal scenes of swimming in philosopher's pupil and um tasha i know that you've been thinking particularly about that novel mm. i was well I, while you were talking i was just thinking about the difference between um you know the eniston baths in philosopher's people which which is you know one of Murdoch's most municipal swimming kind of settings um but municipal in a, a way that sounds completely amazing and um 
and of all the places and all the Murdoch novels, if I could go to any of them, I think I'd go to Anniston. Um, it's just such a, it sounds like a wonderful, wonderful kind of place to just immerse yourself in. And I think that's what she's trying to do with that. But while we were talking, talking about clarity and and nature and the, the immersion of the self in water, I was just thinking about effing and nearly drowning in fog, in the fog, in the book, and yeah, the unicorn, and that, which is of course another form of, another form of water. I mean, I, I live um, near Aberystwyth, uh, um, just outside, and there we have mountains behind us, and then a large uh, little grass bog um, called um, Cors Fochno, and then the sea. Um, so it's a very, you know, I'm really sort of surrounded by water, and I, and I read The Unicorn years and years ago, but when we moved here, I sort of, we went and we went for a walk across the bog and realised very, very quickly that you don't go, you do not go off the, the duck boards um, because you would, you would just fall in. And that is, it is an incredibly wet and incredibly dangerous environment um, if you don't know what you're doing. And there's that sort of moment for it, as so often for Murdoch's characters, is that moment where he's, he thinks he's going to die, doesn't he? And yes, it gets this wonderful sense of, of, of the clarity of the universe at that point. Yeah, absolutely. there's a sort of perspective that it gives him, which is partly, I think, to do with the fact, you know, the very straightforward fact that, you know, she could have done anything to him, but he, you know, that he's thinking about dying. And it's that sort of proportion setting that's happening. There. But there's also, I think, I think it matters that it's a, a wet kind of environment. Um, and that it's, there's a kind of, that water allows the characters to sort of step out of the world sometimes. Um, mm. Although I'm not quite thinking, I, you know, my brain was just sort of hopping onto Charles Araby and thinking, well, what about, what about him and James? Um, and, and how does, because one, one of the things I was wondering about was, you know, that, that is Murdoch does seem to have a very strong sense in that, there's that lovely quote that you mentioned Lucy about, in that letter to Philippa Phil, she's talking about swimming as a spiritual practice and she's, you know, she's in, in part of a very long literary tradition of linking water with the sublime. Um, you, you go back to um, Wordsworth and the Prelude, you know, is the obvious one, but then um, Coleridge writing about, about um, swimming. There's a lovely poem that Coleridge wrote about, about swimming when he's not been allowed to for a long time in his first swim. Um, and he, and, and they both sort of use water as a sort of analogue for sort of immersion of the self in another element and in a different sort of un unsolving process and Murdoch does do that too but then I, then I thought well is that tr how true is that of say Charles Araby? I mean can anything unself Charles Araby but I mean do I mean, I've really just thought the other thing oh, yeah, what do does immersion in water what does it do for other people I mean there, there's a lovely bit um I'll read it in a sec in the philosophy's people, a description of Alex and um, Alex and um, Adam, that's it, meeting in in the water. And how different oh, of course, in the box, yeah. And, and how different that is for them. Um, so yeah, I'll, just, I'll just read you that because I think it'll make the point a bit clearer. Um, so this is page 94 in the philosophy's people. In the vast expanse of the outdoor pool, some people splashed quickly, privately. Others swam about purposefully, looking for their friends. Others systematically, obsessively swam length after length, seeing nothing, their heads deep in the dark water. I mean, that's someone who knows their swimming pools. That's such a, a wonderful evocation, isn't it? Alex, idling across the centre, annoying probably all the people doing length, um, ran into Adam. <laughs> they seized each other, laughing. 
On land, their bodies could not communicate. Alex never kissed her grandson, never touched him. That's, you know, that's strange. Um, in the water, it was different. They had new bodies, beautiful and free, warm and full of grace. And, I, I, and that word grace, I think, is not an accident there. Suspended, they dandled each other. They sometimes met like that, as if it were in secret. I mean, that suspended is interesting, isn't it? That they are, you know, it's almost in secret. And this is such a misty outdoor pool as well, isn't it? That there's a sort of sense of it being something, there's something that's not quite, you know, it's not totally surprising when a UFO appears towards the end of this novel. Um, so, they sometimes met like that, as if it were in secret. Isn't it lovely? Yes. This simple praise of the waters was always exchanged as if this daily blessing always came as a surprise. How said? asked Alex. Fine, how are you? Are you all right? Alex, Adam always asked Alex if she was all right when he met her in the water. Yes, fine. Lovely to see you. Lovely. They parted and swam away. And it's, it's absolutely idyllic, isn't it? It's absolutely wonderful. And then Murdoch takes us straight back to George. George, leaving the nauseating sight of the swimming babies behind him and having instantly forgotten about Adam. Um, and it pulls us straight out of that lovely kind of sort of amniotic almost sort of environment that she's just created with Alex and Adam and reminds us that, that George has just been having some sort of fairly disturbing um, sort of reactions to thinking about drowning the babies in the, the baby swimming class. Um, yes, sorry, Tasha. I'm, cu I'm curiously right, right at the beginning, just after the, the, the episode where he's shoved Stella in the car into the into the canal yeah yes um you know, he, and then he wakes up and he's in this kind of dream sequence the next morning mm. when he realizes what's actually happened and curiously um he you know the the thinking goes and the devil was in the dream too he was crossing the bridge I always connect him with water and it's that connection then it's gone right away from everything, all the beautiful things you were just saying about that visceral, celebratory, enriching sense of well-being in the water to this kind of, you know, the other side of the coin of water, which is, you know, the, the, the drowning, the sort of danger, the devil, the, yeah. you know, she's got it, she's, she's got it all in that novel, hasn't she? She's managed to get it all in there. Yeah. Yeah, one, one thing that I think about is always about in, in that particular novel is the public experience of sharing water and the private experience of being on your own in water. And, yeah. I, and, you, can, and you can see that with Rosanoff in his private bath. But you can, as you, that, that beautiful sentence that Tasha read out, that public experience that you get with, with the, the, the main baths. I think it's, you know, she does some interesting things there, that, uh, the dichotomy between the two. Mm. And the way it's regarded, I think. So you also have this whole discussion about whether this is the place of hedonism and it should all be banned or whether this is the place where yeah. any good can happen. So it's, it's just how you experience it. It's, it has an ambiguity to it, but also how it's regarded has an ambiguity to it. Yeah. Um, and, and actually one of the few novels where I think she really talks about water and sexuality much more than in the yeah. other. Yeah, there's that, there's that bit quite early on, isn't there, where somebody and describes um, a visiting preacher who who sort of castigates them for having sort of dethroned christ and wor worshiping water instead yeah and that that really sort of you know you see you see not just how central it is to everyone's life but actually just how central it is to to the to the kind of the, the way people live in enniston um and it's sort of in some ways it's, you know the more, I, the more i think about the way that the, the baths function in Aniston, you know, the more you, the more fantastical it is, and the more, more sort of unrealistic it is, and yet 
it doesn't feel it when you're reading it because it, you know, it makes a lot of sense that obviously all of these people would be in this these swimming bath complex all the time um in a way i mean so none of them appear to need to go to work that sort of thing but um but it's there's something there's something very kind of fantastical that you accept and that i think only really surprises you when it when it does sort of break into the ufo level of surprising um that there's something something completely other and otherworldly about it um it's not the kind of you know i think about sort of spas i've been to which is not not many but the one you know where you sort of wander around in an increasingly damp dressing gown getting quite cold and you're you know wearing some uncomfortable flip-flops and you know sort of being sort of and queuing for various things and it's not like that at the Emerson Baths. They, they are sort of a bit frayed around the edges in some ways and she's lovely on the detail. I, I love that sequence where Tom goes into the, the engine through the bowels of the building and nearly gets killed. Um, that's extraordinary isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. It ties back to what you were saying Mars about being alone in that environment that actually that it's 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 such a, a moment of danger. Um, but that he's also, you know, that's also, I think she's left realism way behind at that point. Yes, we've, we've, we've moved into the realm of myth really, haven't we, in the, uh, the, the, the descent into the underworld there. And we get, you know, the, I think for listeners who, are, who haven't read all of, all of Murdoch's novels, you know, it, it appear, you know, swimming appears, I think, in more than half of her novels. I mean, we haven't got time to go through them all today. But you know that that beautiful scene in Under the Net, where Jake and Jake and friends slip in into the Thames. I'm, I'm, perhaps um, Lucy will talk to us a, a little bit about that in a minute. Um, but also, you know, right the way through to um, Jackson's Dilemma, where um, where there's the drowning, and, and I, I think it's Edward that says, I, "I will no longer swim anymore." And there's a, a real mm -hmm. sense, of course, in Jackson's Dilemma of, of, of Murdoch um, coming very close to that novel. I think um, it's being obviously compared to. The five novels prior to Jackson's Dilemma is incredibly pared back. It's much shorter, um, mm. and, um, in, in some regards, it's it's much starker as well. But still, but still dealing with her, um, still dealing with those particular issues. Um, but certainly, in, in in the major novels, I, I you know, the the, the swimming is um, you know an integral part. So, Lucy, I'm sure you've got something to uh, to say about that. Yes. Well, I I noticed that Conra Conradi um, talks about. Charles Araby in The Sea, The Sea, and Jake Donoghue in Under the Net. He describes them as both short men who blush and like <laughs> swimming. And I just find, <laughs> I, I, I can't, um, I know they both like swimming, but I haven't found the, 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 the blushing yet, but um, that's for more study. Um, but you see, in Under the Net, the swimming in the Thames is a subversive act. They know they need to avoid the police. and what I'm quite taken with um, in Under the Net is, is the description of post-war London. You get, you're not, you haven't got that kind of the sensory visceral body in the water sort of description that we're going to get in the later novels. But what we do have is a sort of a document of the state of the Thames, the detritus and the effect on the river of the bombed out Victorian sewers. So and Murdoch writes, there was a smell of rotten vegetables. And I mean, really, you have to hope that that's all it was, I suppose. Um, but there's a, you know, in, in Under the Net, there's a wonderful description of um, them getting in. And we, we do know it's summer. And um, those of us swimmers who um, 
take on sort of swimming in rivers and the sea in the summer. You know, we, I mean, I'm always full of great bravura that seems to disappear in the winter. And, um, and I don't sort of require the Jake's brandy fueled. Um, I don't need Jake's brandy at this point. I probably need it in the winter. But anyway, so he gets in the water with brandy fueled confidence. And, um, you know, Murdoch does describe the touch of the air and the water and the way the blood buzzed for Jake behind his skin with a nervous feet. So you know that she knows what she's talking about and the water closing as a cold clasp around his ankles. But being Jake, he tells us he swims excellently. Swimming, he says, depends upon one's willingness to surrender a rigid and nervous attachment to the upright position and it demands the elimination of superfluous motion. So he's really quite the expert and he knows exactly, you know, the way to do it. And he says it's about controlling one's body and overcoming the primeval fear of falling, which is so deep in the human consciousness. So, I mean, I suppose what she's saying here is that unlike most mammals, humans have to, you know, learn how to swim and he's, um, one of the lucky ones who has. I mean, it was much more available to men than women in the early parts of 20th century. So, I mean, I always think of uh, Murdoch swimming uh, from the sort of 1930s on as, you know, quite a sort of radical act for a woman. It's, um, um, and, but that's probably a conversation for later or another time. But, you know, Jake is a man who believes he's in control of his environment. He's sovereign. We don't, I mean, we, we get that bit about the state of the Thames, but we don't kind of get too much about the, how, the Thames is not there as a character in its own right, if you like. We don't sense the presence of the Thames as, a, as anything more than a, a, a setting, I suppose. Um, then when you fast forward um, about 24 years, and Murdoch is now at the height of her powers as a novelist. Um, she's moved away from that sort of Sartrean existentialism of her youth um, um, and is engaging now much more in her writing with the visceral, the sensual, and the effective qualities of place, the natural scene. Um, and I think you could argue that her depictions of the natural world um, have grown in their importance and their significance. Uh, she's growing ever more ecologically aware and more inclined towards accepting the fluid boundaries that exist between the human and the non-human. And, and so we're talking more sort of Maurice Merleau-Ponty here. And the work of this French philosopher, um, who is influential amongst modern day ecologists, um, so he figured humans as being members of an interdependent ecosystem, arguing that all living organisms exist intertwined, he wrote, and in constant interaction with the flesh of the world around them. So then, if we consider the sea the sea, uh, orthodox interpretations of the novel tend to talk about the sea as um, a metaphor for Charles Araby's turbulent mind and his tendency towards the sort of romanticism that Murdoch was suspicious of. And while I'm, you know, I'm ready to accept this interpretation, um, I'm, I'm going to jump quickly to Marcos Valla, um, one of Murdoch's other novels, A Message to the Planet, um, to, who sort of helps to express another approach one could take to the sea, the sea. 
So in um, The Message to the Planet, Ludens and Marcus are discussing the 17th century Angelus Silesius poem, Die Rose ist ohne Warum. So my translation goes, the rose is without reason. It blooms because it blooms. It pays no attention to itself, nor asks whether anyone notices it. And in response to that, Valar remarks, one may say that a description of the rose means nothing unless, as in poetry, it can be the rose. So in these later novels of Murdoch's, you know, she's starting to address her character's involvement with their surroundings. And, um, and at the same time, the independence and the indifference of the natural environment. Um, and we were talking about this earlier, about the solitary activity. So the interaction is often for the character involved a solitary activity. And so you have Edward Bortram in the woods, Tim Reed in the canal, or Charles Araby in the sea. Um, and you're, we're also starting to get a sort of deeply felt animism of environment or landscape. I mean, she paints the most incredible, rich and varying seascapes in this novel, um, which I think are awe-inspiring. Um, we see much more human, non-human interaction. And just as we find ourselves discussing her characters as real people, and this is the point I was making about that poem earlier, so she's inviting us to consider the sea, Min's Cauldron, Shroff End, as those sort of Kantian things in themselves. She's inviting us to consider, um, she's inviting us to consider the sort of non-instrumental aesthetic value of nature and nature's power in and of itself. Um, I mean, I, so, so we're talking about the sort of the codependence of the different elements, the entangled we, uh, weave of life. Now, Peter Conradi engages with this idea in his book, The Saint and the Artist. He describes the sea as a concrete metaphor, which um, I've referred to, which also has a literal force. So he says it's tactless to colonize the sea as a literary device when its point is, in fact, its resistance to human devices, its miscellaneous nature, its hugeness, and its unpredictability. So Araby's um, awakening from his solipsism, if you like, and his sort of self-obsession depends on the integrity conveyed by, the in by an indifferent natural world. So far from retiring to a coastal idyll, he finds himself, in fact, in his own words, on an ugly coast and up again and he's up against forces far greater than himself. So the, the rocks are folded in to large, ungainly and incoherent heaps. And he says there's an unpleasant smell and the causeway is littered with rusty tins and broken bottles. And when he takes to swim in the take, when he tries to swim in the sea, he, ha he has a big struggle to get back to shore. And um, he finds that somebody's placed an iron post there, but the undeserving rope has floated away. Um, so he tries tying old curtains to this um, iron post to tame the access to the water. And, and as he describes it, sort of to render the sea swimmable. So, um, I mean, this is a, it's a Ming's cauldron where he almost drowns, um, but he's rescued in a remarkable effort, which some would, some have described as a supernatural feat by his mystic cousin, James. 
Um, but I came across a, quite an interesting um, description from the ecologist and activist uh, Rachel Carson, who explains that when waves enter a confined space, they always concentrate all their tremendous force for a driving upward leap. And I like to think that Charles was poised on the top of one of those um, uh, forceful tidal sort of waves. But um, so unfortunately, the ruthless unchilding sea takes the life of Hartley's son, Titus. And Araby suffers a bitter remorse for not wishing by mean, pre you know, he didn't want to spoil the moment and, pre and warn Titus of the dangers. So he's still carried away on his romantic idol and didn't stop to, to think that he must warn Titus about how very dangerous this coastal area is. And the mystic James displaying a greater affinity to the mighty power of the sea, you know, he, he regrets. I, I never for, for Titus watched the sea. And, and I think, you know, I think with this great vast presence of the coastal scene, Murdoch's sort of reminding us of the impermanence and fragility of human life. Um, I'd absolutely agree with you there. And I think, you know, to, to say nothing of the sea monster as well, which we haven't, uh, yes. <laughs> got, you know, haven't, haven't gone on to, I'm, I'm sure we'll mention it in a, in a, in a later podcast. I, think, uh, I like that, that idea about the mystic and the, and the spiritual. And Hannah, I'd like to come to you because I think that's... Um, probably ties into to what you've been thinking. Sorry, I interrupted you. I wanted to say yeah. something about the ecological, because I thought it was very interesting what Lucy said about the Thames is a setting, right? It's not a thing in itself. And what I think is often interesting with, these Mur with Murdoch and swimming is that some environmental methods are, or, or movements are all about abstaining, right? So we shouldn't eat meat, we shouldn't fly, we shouldn't drive cars, and certainly not cars that are necessary uh, big. And I think all that is right and correct, but it's always about abstaining rather than anything else. And in some religious traditions, it's extremely emphasized when they say, talk for instance about Shabbat or Shabbat years, right? Where again, you say, well, the land lays low, you don't do anything. So it's about not doing anything. And I think what's interesting with Murdoch is that she adds another layer that she also says, it's also about relating to nature, to loving nature, to observing nature. And so she does that already in the Sand Castle, where the one swimming scene in clear water this time, but not with a happy ending. And we can talk about why that is, but it starts by the observation of nature where, um, where Moore says, here was the real country where the season's change is marked by minute, minute signs. And then he goes on to describe those. And I think that sentence for me, that struck with me, especially now because we are in Corona times and the, the normal sort of indicators of time, especially at the start, were less obvious. And if you were fortunate, as I was, to live in a house with a garden, I got really obsessed with, with flowers um, opening uh, every day. And I, I just did a walk in the garden every day to see what was happening. And I think Murdoch has this really interesting relationship with nature where you're very interested and loving to nature. At the same time, nature is something on its own. So you can't control it. You can't make a romantic uh, view of it. And swimming again, is signified like that. So swimming is something where you connect to nature, you have to give over a bit, and even Jake has to sort of surrender in a way. At the same time, there's all this mysterious underneath. 
And perhaps that's a nice link to talk about. You asked me to talk about the mystical. Is that right or not? Well, yeah, yeah. Whether there are any links between swimming and her sort of sense of spirituality or even her philosophy, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose the philosophy limited. So I so I looked up all the instances instances where she uses the word swimming in her philosophical writing. I found two. Okay. Metaphysics as a guide to morals. <laughs> uh, there may be more. One in metaphysics as a guide uh, to morals, where she talks about um, freedom is an ability that's very different from swimming, um, in the sense that. Um, uh, freedom is not isolated like swimming and um, I don't think that works with the novels and in existential linguistics where she says Swift, fictional characters swim in moral atmosphere and I think that's nice because yeah. you have this kind of being sustained and uh, at the same time having to do something your, herself so there's not I think an immediate link there is the text um, where she talks about Plato and Aristotle and their need to swim there's one quotation from uh, Plato once talked about swimming where he in the laws where he said the expression if it is an expression Plato often makes it up they can neither read nor swim but those are the people with a lot of sense so we can link that back to Dora so I think the links to swimming in her between swimming and her philosophy are more indirect they're more in the images of clear and muddy they're more in the images of unselfing, which you can sort of illustrate by swimming. They're more in the sort of obsession with ritual and, and grace. I like what Tasha said about the word grace being important. And uh, after the swim in uh, under the net, you, she said uh, that uh, Jake says there was a ritual performed. And perhaps in this, in this notion of love and love and attention towards nature. Um, but but the ambiguity that you find in her swimming, in the sort of the, the idea of surrender and not surrendering completely, the idea of clarity and mystery, I think she is like every swimmer in dark water, obsessed with what might be underneath. That's yes. why I think that the the issue, the swimming of Toby is not from experience. I don't think see Murdoch. I might be wrong, but I don't see her diving into green water very very deep and trying to discover what is underneath there i mean one it's extremely dangerous because the cut in water as she notices actually is the one that you don't uh, follow but also i just i just don't see it happening but it might be true but i think she's obsessed by what might be underneath right i mean when you go swimming in in really dark and muddy water you're always wondering what might be underneath and it might be a monster it might be a clock or it might just be a lot of bikes rusting away, something like that. But, but this notion that Araby can, you know, try and, um, you know, is, is that kind of appropriation of the sea for utilitarian purposes? You know, this idea that um, he could in any sense think that he could tame the sea for his use, you know, and, and that's, I think what she's trying to convey there is a sort of error of our sovereign attitude. You know, it's this idea yeah. that we are, we think that we can overcome, we can overcome a virus, we can overcome the sea, we can manage climate change. You know, I think this it's all there. And I think it's, um, she's wanting, I think she doesn't see it like that. I think she sees it as much more, um, well, she's just pointing out some of these errors of human judgment, I think sometimes. Yeah. Yes, I think quite quite right. And, and, and certainly um, throughout certainly her later fiction, I was thinking back to, 
that experience of, of, of Tim Reed in, in Nuns and Soldiers. Tasha, I want to bring you in at, that, at, at this point, because I think you've got, uh, you want to reflect on a couple of those points from um, Hannah and Lucy. Well, I was just thinking as we were talking about this idea of, of, of something that Hannah mentioned earlier about clarity and clarity of the water and, the, and, and otherness and Murdoch sort of, you know, where, I, I, you know, where Murdoch's philosophy may, you know, might become relevant to how she talks about swimming, I think is there in, in a very similar way to the way that people like Wordsworth and Coleridge did it. It's, it's there in the sort of attitude towards the sublime and the sublime is something that is not you know, when she talks about you know, the difference between the sublime and the beautiful, I think Arabi's mistake is to think that the sea is beautiful, um, and it's not. It's 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 altogether other and different, and something that he cannot and should not try to annex to his ego. Um, and the the James, I think, sort of the James's sort of abdication of his magic comes into that somewhere, I think, um, and that he's in the, in the sense that he's trying to get away from you know, the trappings of the ego that are there even in the, that that sort of form of sort of radical unselfing that he's attempting um i think it's this, this idea of going into to cut to, to, to water and you don't know what's in the water i think you know water is such a wonderful metaphor isn't it for that's that kind of engagement with um that which is not oneself um, that you, and I, you see, I mean, if you if you go into, um, I was in a bunch of water stains yesterday and noticed that uh, there's now a huge section, a really quite a large section on, you know, books about nature, and in the swimming section there, because I was I was trying to find swell, Lucy, after you'd man mentioned it, um, and if you look at the swimming books there, and there are a lot about swimming, there is a sort of, is in the new nature writing, there's a definite kind of trope of you know how I got through insert difficult experience by the aid of you know my pet weasel or you know learning to swim in cold water and so on and I, I, I like those books and I've read quite a lot of them um, there are but there are lots that talk about um, like um, the, the outrun by Amy Littrell which is fantastic which talks about going to try and um, go into recovery as an alcoholic by going up to um, some remote Scottish islands where she, she came from originally and swimming a lot and, and she talks, Lipchop talks really brilliantly about the way in which swimming can allow you to sort of leave things on the land, but without escaping them entirely. They, they follow you, that you don't get away, that you can never entirely sort of divorce yourself from the things that are weighing you down, but it gives you a space in which to perhaps focus on, you know, like as you were saying at the start, Hannah, the intense experience of being extremely cold. Or that the need, or just the, the immersion in something completely other. It's, it's a, in a way, it's a very simple process, isn't it? That you are your body, you are literally physically immersed in something that is that is absolutely other to you. I mean, the very first time I went river swimming, I had absolutely no idea what to expect. I was about thirty, no, mid thirties maybe, um, and being very, very short sighted. And that, and that, thinking at that point that I didn't like swimming. I didn't own any prescription goggles, which I do own now, and thoroughly recommend any short-sighted people out there who don't think they like swimming, being able to see makes a huge difference. Yeah, they are an event, they're fantastic, I agree. They are, they yeah. are I'm absolutely evangelical about them. Um, I think there's something in the fact that we are all short-sighted and maybe that's why we find it hard to <laughs> go swimming in these waters in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's something there about, you know, lack of clarity, isn't it? I feel a lot happier when I can vaguely see where I'm going. Um, 
and that you know I, I wouldn't go swimming without my goggles now um but the first time I went I remember jumping in and and, and actually I should have gone in more slowly I didn't really I didn't have to <laughs> so. um yeah and I remember being in the water and being cold in a way I'd never been cold in my life just sort of just the cold to the bone and and the shock of that but also the shock of it because I was so shocked I opened my eyes and looking up and seeing that the light was completely green around me and I could just I could just have been again very fuzzy because I'm very short-sighted but it and that was actually I was so astonished by that the feeling of of being inside the light somehow that actually I forgot about being cold um, the light in the water yeah so there's something there I think I think Murdoch's Murdoch is someone you know who who spent you know who who grew up when you know wild swimming wasn't as, as you were saying Lucy it wasn't wild swimming it was just swimming um, and swam outside her whole life I think it's it's someone who's very aware of the kind of what she can do with swimming as a metaphor in the fiction it's interesting that Hannah that it doesn't come up in the philosophy more that's really intriguing yeah, it doesn't and also how you swim matters a lot. So there is like breaststroke and so the fact that that Claire, uh, Mother Claire keeps her head above the water. Like, so it's again, like I, said, I think most Dutch people swim with their heads above the water and use breaststroke. Yeah. Well, it's a good open water stroke, isn't it? Because you can see where you're going. And you're um, not following water, which is really important. Yeah. And so I was wondering whether Charles Arrowby, what kind of stroke he does, because Jake has a crawl <laughs> and George has a crawl and a crawl that yeah. is quite un un inattentive to anyone else. He just well, yeah. but he gets out of the way from him. Yeah. Well, Charles is too busy doing battle with the waves. You know, he's, yeah. he's in there for the fight. Yes. I sort of remember James having a remarkable dive, didn't he? Doesn't he dive beautifully? Yeah. He's very great. Yeah. I was going to see what you were saying, Tasha, about being in the water and being much more or primarily aware of the body, of our body rather than the mind, you know, and it's, uh, and I think that comes through in the way Murdoch writes her novels, where she often has the body reacting in advance of the mind mm. To, mm. to, especially in these epiphanic moments, you know, um, and I think, you know, that's something you might, um, f you know, feel as you're in the water I, I that's very interesting mm. i'm just thinking there you're talking about different strokes and um who Merle gives them to it's almost like they're gender specific in in certain way which is mm. which is in which is interesting but but perhaps mm. not after probably there's a, a larger study to be to be had there what i'm going to do now is i'm going to um just read a short section from the unicorn this is um marion um standing on the edge of the sea, just about to, uh, thinking about going in. I think it's interesting to, uh, it brings together so many of the ideas that um, we've just been talking about. The black wall of the cliff rose sheer beside her, glistening a little and seeming to overhang. The sun beat directly upon it, but its darkness hung like a shadow overhead. The beach too was black, with gritty sand at the base of the cliff and black pebbles at the water's edge. Marion had never been afraid of the sea. In fact, we hear earlier that she's a very good swimmer. She did not know what was the matter with her now. The thought of entering the water gave her a frisson which was like a kind of sexual thrill, both unpleasant and distressingly agreeable. She found it suddenly hard to breathe and had to stop and take deep, regular breaths. She threw her bag down on the sand and advanced to the edge of the sea. 
From up above, it had seemed serene and calm. Indeed, it still looked fairly calm a little way from the shore. But some 20 yards out, the smooth surge gathered into enormous waves, which with sudden violent acceleration came tearing in to destroy themselves upon the shingle, which they then sucked sharply downwards and backwards with a grinding roar. Beyond the wild snowy curl and retreat of the foam, the sea now looked, in the bright sunlight, inky black. Marion studied the pebbly verge. It looked as if the beach shelved very steeply, creating an undertow, each retreating wave being sucked with positive, vicious violence, back beneath the tall, uncurling crest of its closely followed successor. Marion began to wonder what to do. Then she lifted her head and saw a face. And of course, we, we hear that the face, is, later on we hear that the face is not, of course, a person, but it is, in, in fact, a seal. Yeah. And um, the, um, that sort of um, combination of the, the natural elements and the animal um, with the, the human trying to enter. And of course she does enter, but she gets, um, she only gets as far as her ankles and then is called back. I think re really interesting how then we get late, in, in later novels, we get sort of, um, certainly with, with Tim Reed in, the, in, in Nuns and Soldiers, we get the same sorts of, sorts of fear and, and, and feeling running through some of the novels. And yet some of the, of course, some of the characters that we've been talking about are actually quite fearless within the water. Yeah. But never, so what they don't do, I just thought thinking about what you said before you start reading the unicorn and, the, and perhaps the different genders. I'm not sure if this is in exactly de gendered, but what they rarely do is swim for competition, right? So yeah. the, the desire to cross the channel or to be the first who uh, does this, that or the other, that doesn't seem to come up much. Whereas if you want ever to buy anything swim related, you get into the shop where all these people are <laughs> completely <laughs> geared up to swim the channel twice. Um, so there, there's that interesting, I mean, I'm not saying the two are, are mutually exclusive or gendered in a very specific way, but it seems to me Murdoch is more towards the side where you're swimming because, um, like, like in uh, uh, the sand, sand castle where they say, I must, I must, but not. I must uh, and now for the next 24 hours until I'm in class or something like that, nothing like that. So we might say the purpose is um, not un perhaps not unlike um, looking at art. If a, for Merle, part, mm. part of the action of swimming is also part of the unselfing action as well. Mm. But much more important, I would say. I think Lucy is spot on when she says it's so much more of an embodied experience. Yes. Yeah, that's why I think it doesn't come up in the philosophy so much because Murdoch doesn't mm. be able to. I mean, that would be one explanation. Yes, Tasha. No, it's just it's saying it, absolutely. I think it, for her, it is very analogous to to looking at a painter um, or something like that. That that you are, you know, or that that lovely quote about the kestrel that you know, that you are all when you when you throw yourself into a river, you are cold and light and wet. Um, but primarily cold and light, and there's something about the chat chat that sort of transfiguration of the of, of what you are and what you can do. I think that's why I prefer swimming in rivers to the sea, um, because when you're in a swimming in a river, it's almost it's almost like being able to fly. You know, you're in a di totally different element. Mm. To what it's it's a it's a completely different experience of being in the landscape than anything that most of us are used to, because of course we're all probably people who you know swimming in rivers fell out of favor it was what with the spread of the swimming pool doesn't it didn't it so in by by the sort of 80s or 90s it's become hard something that doesn't really you know people don't do so much 
might be thought of as eccentric. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things that really, that I was really struck by looking things and reading for this and looking at um, books about swimming, um, the sort of histories of swimming, is actually how much, how many times Murdoch pops up in those as an example. I think um, Sprawson calls her one of the, you know, the last river swimmers, doesn't he? In the heart, uh, yes, he does. Yeah. yeah, and of course, and she reviews his book as well, doesn't he? Well, yeah, Lucy, no. tell us about that, please. <laughs> Well, you see, this is interesting because I went off to a conference in Orkney and um, Amy, Lippert had reviewed, oh. Amy Lipp had penned the new introduction to Haunts of Black Messer, which is the mm. sports book that you refer to, Tasha. Mm. I was no, it's wonderful. In the case of Amy Lipp I was going off to talk about the CDC and you know that wonderful serendipity of uh, you know, the research fields when everything just fits really nicely together. And I was telling them about, you know, um, this review that Murdoch is supposed to have written called Taking the Plunge. And um, then I got back home, having had a wonderful conference, and set to to read the Iris Trilogy. And there's John Bailey laying, laying claim to having written that review on her behalf. So, I, I you know, I'm interested, I mean, ghostwriting is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it, it, the, the article's been given her name. But um, he's writing this memoir shortly before her death, and obviously she can't, she's not there to offer nuance or insight into how that all came about. So, you know, Bailey says he wrote Taking the Plunge, and that was... Um, that was and, and yet it was published in 1993, and um, she was yeah, still... Mm. You know what, didn't mess it, I think Message of the Planet came out around then, didn't it? So... That was Green Knight, I think, in '93, actually. So. Yeah, Green Knight. That was it. Yeah. But it is an odd piece. I would think once since since I've learned that he, mm. he might have written it, I would not be surprised. There are a few couple of remarks in there that aren't hers. Yeah, like the swimming pool is a machine to swim in. The phrasing is odd, and the image yes. is odd. Oh, yeah. And mm. what he says about Aristotle and Plato, I think, is also not doesn't seem to gel with. And there was a remark, I, I can't remember it now, but there was a remark about women that I didn't think came from her either. You know, so you can see it when you look, look for it, I think. But, oh. uh, hmm. How interesting. I mean, there's always been that sort of slight, slight um, question mark over the first chapter of The Bell, isn't there? How much of um, input um, Bailey had into that as well? Yes, yeah, um, so he, he, he um, said that he, in this same tr um, tract of his uh, memoir, he said he says he constructed the backstory to Dora. Yes, he, how much we believe that. And he proudly says, proudly says it appears on page 10 of the first edition. So. There you are. I, I must admit, um, I did write to him and, you know, many years ago and ask about this and he didn't deny it. Um, oh. But he didn't, conf he didn't confirm it either. He said, my dear boy, it was just far too long ago to remember. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I, 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 so I didn't question him any further, but uh, yeah. So where, where, should, where should our listeners go if they want to know um, more about Murdoch and swimming? Which, which novels, where, or what, uh, what should they be reading? Well, I think The Philosopher's Pupil is great for all the scenes it has about swimming and this endless fantasy of the swimming pools and what it says about the people, how they swim, when they swim, that they swim, that they don't swim. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a certain a good one. I like the bell as well for that reason with this mm. lake and the and the swimming of 
Dora, the swimming of Toby. I think, but I like the bell. I think the bell is certainly a good one to go to in any ways if you've never read Murdoch. It's a good starter, so, isn't it? Absolutely. The sea, getting the, the sea getting the better of Araby, I think, is extraordinary. <laughs> and just for the descriptions, extraordinary the descriptions of the changing seascape, because, you know, um, when you look out at a, a sea um, from one day to the next, it will look entirely different. You can never kind of replicate the view, can you? I mean, it's like looking up to a cloud formation and, it, and you just have to accept you're not going to see the same cloud formation a, another day. And I just think um, that that in itself, you know, gives you that kind of, well, well, with swimming, actually. I mean, I think what, the reason why I love this kind of swimming is that it's new, it's always new and it's always fresh, isn't it? It's never the same experience twice. And I think that's what makes it so yeah, I think for me the, um, the the swimming scenes in each of her novels are, are painted so well. You get such wonderful, mm. vibrant colours. Particularly, just look, um, having reread the Unicorn recently, thinking about the, mm. the purples, greens, and the blues that she puts into that. I know that the the same kinds of imagery that we get in um, to a certain extent um, in in the Sea the Sea as well. Tasha, what about for you? I think I definitely second all of those. Actually, I was thinking of the Unicorn and just the attention. I think that's one of the things that really interests, you know, interests me in the way that she thinks about swimming, exactly as you're saying, Lucy, that there's an attention to water, an attention to swimming and the experience of swimming, whether it's nearly drowning or whether it's losing yourself in a, in, you know, or, or finding somebody and being able to communicate with them, you know, in a way, in a, in a pool, in a way that you can't um, outside the pool, as you see so often in, in the philosophers' people, you know, that there's a, something there about the way that water makes you pay attention to it when you're swimming and what happens to you if way betide you you don't yes that's i think is really central so I mean, definitely so de definitely the, the philosopher's pupil is definitely the high watermark then of her thinking oh. about swimming yeah or just yeah and nonsense soldiers i thought about is a good one as well actually because you have the drowning yeah. scene of anne yeah, 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 but yeah. you also have this fantastic magical river and the pool, the, 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 yes the, the rock pool and yes I mean, in that novel, and actually generally throughout a novel, she's offering that kind of full spectrum of the human relationship with water, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and of course, the um, when Zed gets lost in the sea as well, okay. in Foster's yeah. People. Yeah, we, we, at the beach, we haven't talked about the beach scene, mm. when, they all, when they all go off to the seaside. That's uh, an interesting one as well. Yeah. But, See, dogs, uh, so, don't have, dogs don't need to learn to swim. They don't need to do... Um, they didn't true. have... Hannah's certificate, age six, isn't it? No, and I'm sure there will be a podcast about Iris Weldock and dogs because we <laughs> could cover so <laughs> much. So if any, if, any yeah. <laughs> if we have some um, people that are interested in um, in dogs, I'm sure we'll have them on to talk about that at some point. But there we must end because our, our, our time together has come um, to, a, to an end. So my thanks to my guests, uh, to um, Hannah Altorf, to Lucy Alton and to Tasha Alden. And when we return in the autumn, we'll have um, some podcasts uh, on um, one on how to begin Iris Murdoch, we'll have one on Iris Murdoch in Ireland, one on Iris Murdoch in swimming, and a special celebrating the 50th anniversary of a fairly honourable defeat. So we'll be back in September with more. Thank you for listening. <laughs>